brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that sends 5% of your monthly plan price to your favorite charity. No contracts, nationwide coverage, risk-free guarantee. Learn more at CharityMobile.com. The Synod on Synodality started this week on the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi. We've had some weird news out of it already. And we've got this, I think, great opportunity to remind at least the laity, if not, and whatever bishops may be watching this anonymously, that they actually have a duty to govern the church with care. This is our second part looking at the writings of St. Pope St. Gregory the Great, one of the fathers and doctors of the church. He reminds us that governing the church is a duty of God that God gives to the bishops. They have a duty to preserve the faith, to not be innovative, to not change things as they see fit. It's a reminder, I think, that they should take heed in as things begin to progress. And I will remind you that a, a Bishop Athanasius Schneider had a prayer that he published for the laity to say, for the synod to actually not go off the deep end. Not how he characterizes it, that's how I characterize it. Let me know if you would like that. I did cover that last weekend in my live stream, but if you would like it, I will try to put a link to it somewhere in the comment section or in my show notes today. Anyway, let us continue now with Pope St. Gregory the Great on governing the church. Chapter 3 of the weight of government and the, that all manner of adversity is to be despised and prosperity feared. So much then have we briefly said to show how great is the weight of government, lest whoever is unequal to sacred offices of government should dare to profane them, and through lust of preeminence undertake a leadership of perdition. For hence it is that James affectionately deters us, saying, Be not made many masters, my brethren. Hence the mediator between God and man himself, he who, transcending the knowledge and understanding even of supernal spirits, reigns in heaven from eternity. On earth fled from receiving a kingdom. For it is written, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force, to make him a king, he departed again into the mountain himself alone. For who could so blamelessly have had principality over men as he who would in fact have reigned over those whom he had himself created? But because he had come in the flesh to this end, that he might not only redeem us by his passion, but also teach us by his conversation, offering himself as an example to his followers, he would not be made a king, but he went of his own accord to the gibbet of the cross. He fled from the offered glory of preeminence, but desired the pain of an ignominious death, that so his members might learn to fly from the favors of the world, to be afraid of no terrors, to love adversity for the truth's sake, and to shrink in fear from prosperity because this often defiles the heart through vain glory, while that purges it through sorrow. In this the mind exalts itself, but in that, even though it had once exalted itself, it brings itself low. In this man forgets himself, but in that, even perforce and against his will, he is recalled to memory of what he is. In this even good things done aforetime often come to nothing, but in that faults even of long standing are wiped away. For commonly in the school of adversity the heart is subdued under discipline, while on sudden attainment of supreme rule, it is immediately changed and becomes elated through familiarity with glory. Thus Saul, who had fled in consideration of his unworthiness, no sooner had assumed the government of the kingdom than he was puffed up. For desirous of being honored before the people, while unwilling to be publicly blamed, 
he cut off from himself even him who had anointed him to the kingdom. Thus David, who in the judgment of him, who chose him, was well pleasing to him in almost all his deeds, as soon as the weight of pressure was removed, broke out into a swelling sore, and having been as laxly running one in his appetites for the woman, became as cruelly hard in the slaughter of the man, and he had before known pitifully how to spare the bad learned it afterwards, without impediment or hesitation, to pant even for the death of the good. For indeed, previously, he had been unwilling to smite his captured persecutor, and afterwards, with loss to his wearied army, he destroyed even his devoted soldier. And in truth, his crime would have snatched him farther away from the number of the elect, had not scourges called him back to pardon. Chapter 4. That for the most part the occupation of government dissipates the solidity of the mind. Often the care of government, when undertaken, distracts the heart in various directions, and one is found unequal to dealing with particular things, while with confused mind divided among many. Whence a certain wise man providentially dissuades, saying, My son, meddle not with many matters, because that is the mind is by no means collected on the plan of any single work, while parted among various. And when it is drawn abroad by unwanted care, it is emptied of the solidity of inward fear. It becomes anxious in ordering of things that are without, and ignorant of itself alone, knows how to think of many things, while itself it knows not. For when it implicates itself more than is needful in things that are without, it is as though it were so occupied during a journey as to forget where it was going. So that being estranged from the business of self-examination, it does not even consider the losses it is suffering, or know how great they are. For neither did Hezekiah believe himself to be sinning, when he showed to the strangers who came to him as his storehouse of spices, but he fell under the anger of the judge, to the condemnation of his future offspring, from what he supposed himself to be doing lawfully. Often when means are abundant, and many things can be done to subordinate to admire, the mind exalts itself in thought and fully provokes to itself the anger of the judge, though not breaking out in overt acts of iniquity. For he who judges is within, that which is judged is within. When then in heart we transgress, what are we doing within ourselves is hidden from men? But yet in the eyes of the judge we sin. For neither did the king of Babylon then first stand guilty of elation, when he came to utter words of elation, inasmuch as even before, when he had given no utterance to his elation, he heard the sentence of reprobation from the prophet's mouth, for he had already wiped off the fault of the pride he had been guilty of, when he proclaimed to all the nations under the omnipotent God whom he found himself to have offended. But after this, elevated by the success of his dominion, and rejoicing in having done great things, he first preferred himself to all in thought, and afterwards, still vainglorious, said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom, and in the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty, which utterance of his, as we see, fell openly under the vengeance of the wrath which his hidden elation kindled. For the strict judge first sees invisibly what he afterwards reproves by publicly smiting it. Hence him he turned even into an irrational animal, separated him from human society, changed his mind and joined him to the beasts of the field, that in obviously strict and just judgment he who had esteemed himself great beyond men, should lose even his being as a man. Now, in adducing these things, we are not finding fault with dominion, but guarding the infirmity of the heart from coveting it, lest any that are imperfect should venture to snatch at supreme rule, or those who stumble on plain ground set foot on a precipice. Those are the words of St. Gregory the Great. Poetically written, a little high level, what he's basically saying is, don't wrap yourself in ambition. Don't wrap yourself in material success. Don't wrap yourself in vainglory. 
what does that have to do with like the synod on synodality as we're seeing play out right now? Well, you may have noticed in the two years this has been going on now that the proposals from pretty much most every national bishops conference have been essentially that the laity were clearly handpicked and representing a rather specific point of view in the church that they wanted giveaways to the secular world on moral issues mostly the uh, james martin sin being really high on that list as well as ordination and other things and one has to wonder why the bishops are so keen to do this now it can be argued as some have accused the bishops of doing that a rather high percentage of the priests in the church and a rather high percentage of the bishops at least in the west are of the uh, james martin coterie if you will that they share his interests that is an accusation some have made i don't make it here but many have made it and that could be a motivation if it were true i think more in charity it is to say that they instead of being wrapped up in sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance themselves they are simply trying to get regain the esteem of the world and the for the church esteem lost ironically when those when purveyors of those same sins were hiding in the church and committing Ted McCarrick crimes. A math that they refuse to admit is real. Maybe I'm off base with that. Let me know what you have to say on that in the comments, please. And hit like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help, as does sharing this on social media. That helps, too. I'll present probably the next couple or three chapters next month in November. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.